Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley and a very happy new year to all of you joining us here this week. The first episode of the show for 2023, first of many, and a lot of Braves and baseball talk to get to as always, but wanted to wish you all a happy new year. Thank you for your support in 2022 and ask for you to do it again here in 2023. Help us grow the show. Make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also follow me on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley. You can find Corey McCartney at Corey J. McCartney on Twitter. And the show is at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. You can also find me on Instagram at Grant McCauley. And you can like the show on Facebook as well as Instagram. All you have to do is search for From the Diamond. With all that out of the way, we got a lot to get to on today's show, and uh, I can't start any other way than to wish you a very happy new year, Corey. It is finally 2023, which means that pitchers and catchers report in just six weeks, and I guess it brings us into the new year with a question, which I'll get to in just a moment. But first of all, no. you know, how was the new year? How were the holidays? And are you excited as I am about those two little words, pitchers and catchers? Yeah, I mean, it always it, the weather's been fantastic the last couple of days in Atlanta, right outside of some rain. But every time you hear those words, it kind of makes everything a little bit brighter. And, you know, we're, we're getting closer, man. That, those, are, those are the words that get everybody revved up that works in, and loves baseball. Yeah, and, and that would qualify for both of the people currently doing this show. But here's that question I want to ask you, and it is, it's kind of rhetorical. And I, I think that we already know what the answer would be from Alex Anthopoulos. And that answer would be, of course. And the question is, is a GM's job ever done? But what I think we're all waiting to see is, are there any more moves for the Braves to make, sizable or otherwise, before we get to spring training? I think there's more coming. And, of course, you, obviously we don't know when you get to spring training who's going to get let go by their club. You know, who, we, we've seen plenty of guys over the years mm-hmm. that you can think of. You know, uh, Irvin Santana in particular, I think, is the one that I always immediately go to, guys that came on late uh, and were able to make an impact with a team. But I think that's always what you watch. And certainly I think you're wondering, are they going to stick with the internal options at shortstop? which could be the, the biggest variable, I think, in all this. But I don't I don't think Alex Anthopoulos is done, and I'm sure he would tell you he's never done. Yeah, and I think that that's really the moral of the story here. Now, will that mean more big spending for the Braves? Are there really that many more big spending options out there in the free agent market? Uh, not so much, pending whatever the Mets are doing with Carlos Correa, which seems to be out of the Braves' general area of shopping at the moment anyway. But we'll get to Carlos Correa, the Mets, and all of that stuff in just a few moments because you know the NL East has definitely loaded up. And while we'll talk about the Braves, their question marks at shortstop, left field, DH, maybe the back end of the rotation, we got a lot of listener questions rolling in on this episode of the show. So I figured, why don't we let the people kind of ask the things that they want to, and you and I will try to fill in the blanks as best we can 
on those topics and maybe a little bit more. And the one thing I really wanted to focus on to start with, at least, is now that we are kind of on the doorstep, at least, of spring training, I mean, it's going to be happening next month. At least that's when it gets started. We know we got World Baseball Classic. A lot of other exciting things are going to be happening before the regular season gets started. But I think everybody's still kind of looking at that winter checklist. Have you done all the things you can do? Are you happy with what your club has done? And in the NL East, there's some pretty long checklists to look at, particularly for two of the Braves' main rivals, which have loaded up. That would, of course, be New York and Philadelphia. Whatever we do find out what Carlos Correa's fate is going to be, and it seems like he's going to be in a Mets uniform, it's just going to take some time to get the language right. We have all the other variables, it appears, accounted for. But the Mets and Phillies both spent big this winter, Corey, for one reason, and that's to catch up with the pace that the Braves have set over the past five years. Absolutely. And, I, and it's interesting from the Braves perspective to think about the fact that you have this core in place that's not going anywhere. And the only way that these teams can deal with that is to go out and spend stupid money. And I think that's the thing. As much as you and I have been hit by Braves fans on our Twitter accounts saying they didn't do enough, they didn't do anything, all these different variables of it. The fact that these other teams had to spend so much yeah. money to try to keep the pace, I think, is the moral of the story. Yeah. And we are talking about a Braves team that didn't do all of its spending in the winter, but if you do go back and look over the last calendar year, we'll call it since the Matt Olson trade, the Braves have definitely taken a whole bunch of money and locked up that core of players that have made them either so good to the point or was even added to and supplemented by a couple of more guys who got locked up for long term, and that would, of course, be the rookies of the year. and that, that Michael Harris, who won the award, Spencer Strider, who was the runner-up for this award, you know, those are two guys that became a part of this nucleus as well. Then you start to look at all of the other deals that have been in place or were put in place over the last year. The Braves have spent that money, and clearly over the luxury tax, going out trading for catcher Sean Murphy, extending him. I think that there's more spending to be done, and the Braves will get to that. It just may be kind of as we've seen over the last few years, adding in season to really directly address a need that pops up because the Braves, I, I know that shortstop's a big question mark, and moving on from Dansby Swanson creates a, a, a bigger level of uncertainty than the Braves have had at that position in quite some time, but there are not a lot of holes on this team the way that some other clubs might be dealing with some more sizable gaps. Now, when you do look at what the New York Mets did, they had a pretty sizable gap they started the offseason with because they lost Jacob deGrom, who's one of the best pitchers of this generation. Well, all they did was go out there and get one of the other best pitchers of this generation and Justin Verlander to kind of headline remaking that rotation. They signed a whole bunch of other players. They also locked up a couple of key members of their team to extensions. Carlos Correa's signing is a coup de grace for Steve Cohen when the ink dries on that one. But it's still impossible to say, even with all of that done, that all of that spending made New York the far and away favorite in this division, which is a crazy thing to think about when you look at that record payroll, plus the tax implications, and the fact that Steve Cohen shows no signs of slowing down, at least not anytime soon. Yeah, obviously, they, they're whenever this thing does get resolved, they're adding one of the best players in baseball to a top four offense from a year ago in Carlos Correa. They've gone out and added Justin Verlander to the, you know, alongside Max Scherzer. But I still have question marks over a rotation that's relying on so many guys who are on the wrong side of 30. And I know we've seen, you know, obviously Verlander was fantastic in the, the 2022 season winning right. Cy Young. But I think you have to have question marks about whether they're going to get the amount of starts that they need over those guys. But because historically, this just, you, you haven't 
haven't been able to rely on those guys. There's only been, I believe it's five teams in the last 20 years that have, have gotten, you know, more than uh, 30 starts out of multiple guys uh, on the wrong side of uh, 30. So I think they're in trouble from that end, but they're obviously they have, these guys are, you know, all time kind of talents, but I, I do have some question marks with the rotation side of things for the Mets. Yeah. And if you're going to invest in guys on the other side of 30, I mean, Max Scherzer and Justin Verlander are two of the guys that you look yeah. at and think if things are going to go right, I mean, this is the kind of bet that you feel comfortable making or the risk that you feel comfortable taking, even if you have to really up the ante with what you're paying him, which for Steve Cohen, that doesn't seem to be a problem whatsoever. And even with the Mets crazy spending over the next couple of years, I mean, a lot of this money comes off the books. So they're really outside of the Correa deal. I mean, the Nimmo extension, obviously a, yep. a big one. Edwin Diaz being signed to an extension. That's clearly big money that's spent, you know, locked up long term. Some guys beyond the next couple of years. But other than that, I mean, and, and Lindor, Francisco Lindor clearly was the, the longest contract they had given out in quite some time. And there were some big question marks whether or not he would be staying in New York, I think, before signing that extension, that was not a given. But while the Mets do have a few key pieces in place, they don't have anything in place quite like what the Braves do because, let's face it, not very many teams do. So that leads you out onto the free agent market to try to, I think, figure out some of the pieces that you're missing. And the Philadelphia Phillies were out there as well. Their winter spending spree, less extensive than Steve Cohen and the Mets, but impressive in its own right. The Phillies inked Trey Turner to a huge deal. That's the centerpiece. Added a few more, I think, key cogs to a club that already reached the World Series in 2022, albeit a surprise entrant in the Fall Classic. It doesn't really matter how you got there. It's just the fact that you do get there. They should be better, but, Corey, there's still questions facing the Phillies this year, not the least of which is the health of Bryce Harper in the first half. Yeah, and obviously the front end of that rotation is, I mean, it's with Nolan Wheeler is just absolutely fantastic. And I think it is a matter, though, of how long are you going to be without Bryce Harper? And having Trey Turner in there, a guy that you know what he's capable of to be able to help fill that void. I mean, yep. when he gets, when when Harper does get back, I mean, they're going to be, they're going to be fantastic. They're going to have four of the best players in the National League and in all of baseball uh, on that and within that offense. But I think that is a, that is certainly a question mark. And I do wonder as much as, I, I mean, I have obviously more questions about their rotation than I do the Mets because sure. of the the talent within that Mets rotation, but the back end, uh, I think of that Phillies rotation could be uh, could be a bit of an issue. And I, I'm interested to see what they get from Craig Kimber, who they bring in. You know, who's chasing mm -hmm. down a, a milestone uh, in terms of career saves, and I think he's an interesting piece for that uh, that that back end of that rotation. But uh, they, I think they're going to be better. I don't know that they're obviously going to have the magic that they had a year ago because a lot of things had to go right for that team to make the run that it did. Yeah, it definitely did. And you know, again, it doesn't matter how they. They got there. The fact is, they got there. And going through the Braves was the the one of the big steps that any club in the National League East was going to have to do at some point. The Mets kind of thought maybe they had that thing you know, wrangled by the time you got to the final meeting between the Braves and the Mets in the regular season. That was not the case. But when it came to the postseason, the Phillies were able to dispatch the Cardinals, and then they were able to make pretty short work of the Braves as well in route to the World Series, where they finally ran into some trouble against the Houston Astros, who of course were the last team standing in 2022. But the Phillies, that has to have them very hungry and you can see by the you know way that they've gone out and spent particularly on Trey Turner also signing a, a few other pieces to try to make their club just that much better if they can Kimbrell is an interesting piece you know we think about I think the prime Craig Kimbrell who was in Atlanta the guy who at times with the Boston Red Sox looked almost as dominant as he was in his time in a Braves uniform he wasn't in San Diego a long time but up until like 2019, it seemed like he's on a Hall of Fame trajectory, no question. Might become the all-time saves leader. The last four years, though, Craig Kimbrell has been somewhat of an enigma 
and I think that the Phillies, with a one-year, $10 million contract, can file themselves under what I always like to say is, there's really not a bad one-year deal. This is somebody that if you put him in and you figured out a way to maybe get him back on track, this could answer a big question for the Phillies, which always seems to loom in the late innings for that club. Yeah, they've got Matt Strom as another uh, relief addition there, too. Um, I mean, Kimbrell went 22-27 on save attempts this past season. He's got 394 on his career, which uh, is obviously the most of any active player. I don't know that he ended his campaign. It wasn't a disaster. I mean, a 3.75 no. ERA across 60 innings overall. He's just not that guy that, you know, welcome to the jungle hit, and it felt like game over for the other squad uh, back in the, you know, the Turner Field days. Those days are gone, um, but he's still averaging almost 96 miles an hour on the fastball. Um, um, the walks are elevated for him, but I mean, the aura that that guy has, I think is still, it's still kind of there. Um, you just know he's going to come up with some big moment against the Braves. That just kind of feels <laughs> like it's an inevitability. Yeah. I mean, he's going to get the opportunities to yeah, yeah. being back in the national league. East, of course, it'll be magnified more so than when the Padres came to town or if oh, the sure. Braves saw the, you know, Red Sox and uh, interleague play the Cubs, the Dodgers. I mean, it's weird to think about Craig Kimbrell playing for all of these teams now, because yeah. it, it just kind of felt like, you know, he was going to go somewhere and they were going to want to have him as long as they could, but the Braves traded him. The Padres traded him. The Red Sox said eh, they didn't extend him. And then he had that crazy 2019 where it was just kind of you know, waiting for that qualifying offer to fall off So just so he could sign a deal. He got a multi-year deal with the Cubs, more or less forgettable. I kind of forgot for a moment that he was a White Sox last year or, or oh, yeah. year before last as well. <laughs> so put quite a few teams on Craig Kimbrell's list. Not quite the Kenny Lofton level or the Octavio Dotel level, but he has played for quite a few teams over the past few years. But that aside, he is six saves away from 400. He's seventh on the all-time list. I mean, he's still on a Hall of Fame trajectory if you look at the overall resume and the fact that he could pitch for four or five more years, rack up 60, 70 more saves, 100 more saves. Who knows how the whole thing will work out. If it gets over 500 saves, though, I mean, you can pretty much slam dunk that one. Of course, Hall of Fame discussion, something we're going to have a little bit later in the show. But that's just kind of a, a snapshot of what the Mets and the Phillies did over the course of the offseason. And, of course, we know the Braves have been trying to add, get better in places, maybe places we didn't even think that they needed to get better, which, of course, would be the Sean Murphy trade. That would qualify as one of the moves that was pretty off the board when we went into the winter thinking about what the Braves needed to reload, retool, or simply you know, just tweak a few things to get ready for 2023 and the subsequent seasons in this window of contention. But as I put out the call for some listener questions, I knew there was going to be some focus on how can you make the club better? What's still out there? What's everybody talking about? And there is a big trade candidate that's out there, and that, of course, is Brian Reynolds of the Pittsburgh Pirates, who has asked his club to trade him because they were not able to get together on a long-term extension. Now, John Heyman of MLB Network reported the Pirates offered Reynolds a long-term deal, would have topped the franchise record contract they gave to Key Brian Hayes last spring training. That record contract, $70 million guaranteed. Just if you want to think about the Pirates and their record contract, well, Michael Harris and Spencer Strider of the Braves, a couple of rookies, got more guaranteed money than that on their extensions just this past summer. So if you want to look at kind of where the Braves are at, where the Pirates are at, and how far away it was, a report from the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette from Jason Mackey, $50 million difference between what Reynolds was asking for, wow. his camp, and what the Pirates were going to be willing to give. So a, a sizable gap, hence the question about will they trade him, him wanting to be traded, all of that is on the table very much right now. Now, Corey Slovic asked me on Twitter when I put out the call for questions, again, at Grant McCauley's where you can find me, if the Braves could get a Brian Reynolds trade done, but it costs them Kyle Wright and Vaughn Grissom, would you be okay with that deal? Corey, I'm going to take the easy way out, let you answer first, and then I'm going to give my answer to this question. I'm going to say no. Um, 
I just, but the thing is, like, I don't know what they still have left that can get a deal like that done. I think that's that's the issue. I think, I think Sean Murphy's worth what the price that they had to pay, mm-hmm. but I think that puts you in a position where that kind of put a lot of the chips that you have on the table at this point uh, to get a guy of that magnitude. So I don't, I, I, I would love to see Brian Reynolds in that outfield. Him and Michael Harris or Ronald Cunha Jr. will potentially be a top three outfield in all of baseball. I say no, and I don't know that they have enough right now to get it done. Yeah, I don't think that I would do that trade with Kyle Wright in it, but I also could look at the Pittsburgh side and say, I don't think we're going to do that trade without getting a Kyle Wright in there because you're not going to get Spencer Strider. You're not going to get Max Freed. So what other pitcher in that rotation, and clearly they're not going to be trading for one year of a veteran Charlie Morton who they had when he was a lot younger and they don't want to pay him $20 million. So by process of elimination, if you're trying to get a top young starter, and Kyle Wright will still qualify for that. Charlie Morton doesn't qualify for that. Again, Freed and Strider aren't going anywhere. This is a pretty interesting look into what it might cost if the Braves are, in fact, toward the bottom end of the number of prospects they could deal to get something like that done, to pull off a trade like that. Vaughn Grissom, I mean, you and I talked about this, what, a week or two ago. You know, I said, if you're going to look at a Brian Reynolds trade now, I don't see a way around making that deal without Vaughn Grissom being in that. And I do think the Braves still have some other intriguing prospects, but is Pittsburgh going to be looking for quantity? Are they going to be looking for quality? Are they going to be looking for both of those things? I had people tell, well, they got O'Neill Cruz. They don't need Vaughn Grissom. Well, my simple answer to that is, well, just play Vaughn Grissom somewhere else. If you have a chance to get the best players you can from an organization, get creative. I mean, he's already played second base. I think he could play, you know, you got Key Brian Hayes at third base. Cool. Maybe start looking at Vaughn Grissom in the outfield, which is something that very much is up in the air. I mean, Vaughn Grissom as the future shortstop of the Braves is a story that has yet to really be written, and we're going to see maybe just the prologue of that in spring training if, in fact, he can pull in that job and wrangle it and get that opportunity early in the year. But putting all that aside, if you could extend Brian Reynolds, and I'm not talking about agree to a trade with an extension window, but if you're confident that you can get an extension done with Reynolds and add him to the list of this team's core, I don't know how many more of those deals you can possibly give out because you've already got a lot of them. They pretty much run through the rest of the decade, but they do start to kind of fall off in, what, 2027 or so? If you could lock in Reynolds beyond that, I would not have as much of a problem, but Alex Anthopoulos would then have to get creative and go and figure out a way to get 175 to 200 innings back into this rotation because you can't open up two spots of your rotation, the fifth one that already isn't settled, and then trade a guy like Kyle Wright who's coming off what was a breakout season for him. That would be my big question mark with it. But if you could get him extended, I would absolutely do that trade. Yeah, I mean, if you know that Ian Anderson and Mike Soroka are going to come back and they're going to be what they were before, then maybe that changes the complexity of it a little bit. Maybe you feel a bit of, a little bit more comfortable making that kind of deal. But there's nothing. I mean, Kyle Wright feels, I don't say a guarantee, but he feels like it's something really solidified uh, within that rotation right now after the year that he had. So I just don't know that that they'd be willing to do that. And, and think about from the Pirates' perspective. They got Bryce Wilson from the Braves. They just DFA'd him a week ago and ended up sending to the Brewers. So you know, you've got you've had guys who have come to the major league level and been effective for the Braves and then fallen off. Do you really want anybody else like that if you're thinking about, okay, if you can't get Kyle Wright, maybe we look at Soroka, maybe we look at, at, Ian, at Ian Anderson. 
it would probably take something of the right level to get that done. Yeah, you'd have to get creative with that trade if you're the Braves and you've already dealt off. Because I didn't expect William Contreras to be a guy who would be traded in this offseason. Now, I also didn't expect Sean Murphy to be the guy coming back on the other side of it. I looked at Kyle Muller as somebody that I really wanted to give a long look at in spring training. I've always felt like he's an arm that maybe has gotten an opportunity, but I was surprised that he didn't get another extended look, particularly with how good he was in Gwinnett last year. But Kyle Muller's now an Oakland Athletic. William Contreras is now a Milwaukee Brewer, which is the craziest thing about the whole Sean Murphy trade. But I do think you are at the point where you've already seen them in trading a William Contreras know that maybe they have to part with somebody who's already on the big league roster to get a deal done. If you're going to go get Reynolds, I do think Vaughn Grissom would be in that deal, and that would be kind of a prerequisite if I am the Pirates and asking about young players who I believe have a lot of upside because I don't want this to get lost in Dansby Swanson's departure. I believe Vaughn Grissom has a lot of upside, and I believe the Braves do too. Is he ready for that everyday shortstop job? That's something we're going to be finding out. But if you could do that trade, I wouldn't be necessarily out there trying to find ways to trade Kyle Wright if I'm the Braves because as funny as it is to say about a 20-game winner last year, a guy who led the majors in wins, I feel like he's the stabilizing force of the Braves rotation, and I wouldn't want to destabilize the rotation, particularly after what we just saw in the postseason where things happen, and and things can happen for a lot longer in the last two or three weeks of the season when Max Fried was sick and Spencer Strider was dealing with that oblique. We've seen the Braves rotation take some hits, particularly in 2019 and 2020, where they did have to get creative, and it was almost not quite enough for them to really feel like, and at times, they didn't have five guys they could look at and say, this is our rotation right now, and we feel good about it, and we feel confident that it's going to continue in this fashion. Yeah, and who's to say that if, if you're if talking about this deal with the Pirates and you think that they want Vaughn Grissom, who's to say that they don't say, you know what, Ozzie Albies is making $7 million a year. He would fit really well into what we well, do, and we have cost certainty in what you have in him. Maybe we take a little bit lesser pitcher to get that deal done. I mean, I think as much as you know, people have question marks whether Vaughn Grissom is the answer at shortstop, any other the 29 other teams that are looking at him have the same question marks, and you would obviously much rather have cost certainty of an all-star uh, in the form of Ozzie Albee. So maybe Vaughn Grissom doesn't even get that deal done to get Brian Reynolds. Yeah, well, hopefully that answered the question. I know we got a few tweets that came in you know, after the fact uh, from Corey about, not this Corey, but the other Corey, Corey Slovic on Twitter, who asked about this whole thing. Are you comfortable trading Vaughn Grissom and Kyle Wright in a Brian Reynolds trade? I think Corey McCartney's answer is no. My answer is if you're going to extend him, then I would be open to doing it. So it's a hypothetical unless or until something happens. But I do think that we are at that point where the Braves would have to part with some major league pieces if they wanted to get Brian Reynolds on their club. And when I say major league pieces, I mean guys young enough that can be around for the Pirates to build something. But I think the Pirates building something is a story that's going to require a lot more writing than just a Brian Reynolds trade. And we got a bunch of questions about the starting rotation, so we might as well jump into them now since we'd already talked about it a little bit. This one from Chris Chafee. Do you see the Braves using six starters this year or just five? This is a question that, Corey, I think we get different times of the year when you feel like you have maybe enough candidates that, oh, well, if this guy needs rest, we'll put this guy in. Should a six-man rotation be something teams are thinking about? I'm leery of it because I feel like it takes guys off of their normal routine. If it's an injury-related thing, well, then, of course, you saw the Braves were able to kind of supplement that rotation with a quote-unquote sixth man at times last year. But I don't see it being a plan that they go to, and I don't see too many teams around baseball that stick with it for very long, even if they state that, hey, we're going with a six-man rotation for any length of time. Yeah, unless you got Shohei Otani and you're trying to find ways to keep him, Maybe, uh, yeah. you know, keep the pressure off him a little bit. I don't, I don't see them doing it. I don't know that they 
that they have a, they have six right now. I think they need to find out five. And you know, even if you feel like Mike Soroka is ready to roll, how much are you going to you know be willing to put you know a lot of innings on him uh, at this point uh, going into the 2023 2020? Yeah, I forgot what year it was there for a second. <laughs> going into the 2023 season, so I think they stick with five. I think they're they're you know comfortable with four of those guys, and uh, you sort it out from there. But I think you don't want to take Max Freed and of course you know another veteran Charlie Morton and and obviously Wright and Spencer Strider uh, out of the you know that rotation of of just having five days. And, and knowing exactly when they're going to back out yeah. there. So maybe it's something that they look at later on in the year. If a guy has, you know, some kind of an issue that they feel like they need to, you know, give him an extra day, but I don't see that being a game plan going into the 23 season. Yeah. And that to me is always the answer to this. And, I, and I'm assuming that, you know, if you just look at it from process elimination, if you are going to put a sixth man into the rotation and then you start dividing 162 starts by six rather than by five, and you start thinking about how many times you've taken the ball away from Max Freed, Spencer Strider, yep. Kyle Wright, uh, Charlie Morton, and then whoever the fifth guy is, whether it is Soroka or Ian Anderson, it, you, you basically have to have the perfect storm of a sixth man who could push his way into that as a long-term plan. Again, we've seen it happen at times during the year when it felt like, hey, they could use a guy to come up and really help reset this rotation. Bryce Elder jumped in, Kyle Muller jumped in, and I thought that those were some big innings and some big starts that really helped down the stretch. We could still see something like that. I just think, yeah, I'm with you, Corey. You have to settle the fifth spot, whether it's Soroka, whether it's Anderson, whether it's somebody who's not on the roster yet, a la Anibal Sanchez, like happened in 2019. We don't know yet, but we will find yep. out over the next few weeks. And I got this one from Chris. Uh, who do you like to win the fifth starter spot? Is it Ian Anderson, Mike Soroka, or Bryce Elder? I feel like, to me, this fifth spot really comes down to a 1A and 1B of Mike Soroka and Ian Anderson. Now, Soroka, because of the significant promise that he showed early in his career, only to be derailed by the Achilles injury over the last couple of years, did get back on the mound last year, gets to finally have a healthy, non-rehab-related offseason. Can he come to spring training and show that, hey, I am the guy that you would expect me to be? maybe with a little bit of an innings cap, even if you don't put a, a number on it, but just trying to really bring him back in with a mind towards limiting those innings in some way, shape, or form. Then for Ian Anderson, I mean, the same questions that we saw last year, Corey, does he have an effective third pitch? Is he able to really command the strike zone? Is he able to show the, what he has been at times in his big league career? Then I think there's a bit of a gap. And then you've got Bryce Elder or really anybody else on this list. But I think it's Soroka, maybe by a nose. Uh, but Ian Anderson certainly has shown enough over the last couple of years to make you believe he could still and maybe should still be part of this rotation in that fifth spot. I would probably switch Anderson as my 1A and Soroka as my 1B and then the gap and go into to Elder. I almost would approach Soroka going into 23 like you did Spencer Strider. And he threw, I mean, he threw 25 innings, uh, you know, across six starts in 2022. And that was the first time he had been on a major league mound in three years. So why not just look at it where you go into the year and build him up more and then ultimately allow him to get a rotation spot? I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I don't think if Mike Soroka is not the number five starter on opening day, it does not mean we're not going to see Mike Soroka make a number of meaningful starts in the 23 season. I think there's a of way course. to approach it where you're, you're able to not – have him getting a ton of innings early and you can build him back up 
uh, to get those key innings at the major league mound. Yeah, and I think we agree on that in terms of just at least monitoring the innings and just making yeah. sure that you're checking in with this guy on a regular basis. In the same way, I feel like they were kind of checking in on Spencer Strider over the course of the second half. I mean, there was no innings limit. Nobody came in and said, all right, when he gets to 130, he's done. It just so happened that he ended up with an oblique injury that just cropped up at the worst possible time. I don't think that was from overuse. I just think it's the fact that anybody can get hurt at any time, and it could be a variety of different injuries, and baseball continues to show us that every single day of the 162-game season, uh, plus off days, plus the winter. I mean, things happen to guys. It happens at the worst possible times, not that there's any good time for an injury, but it can and will change your plans. The Braves have seen that in their rotation. I think it's going to be hard, though, to kind of govern the expectations or, or at least – try to tamp down the expectations of Mike Soroka because this is a guy who uh, most years could have won the Rookie of the Year if Pete Alonso hadn't set a, a home run record for rookies in 2019. He's a former All-Star, and so it's going to be hard to keep those expectations down. That would say the same thing about Ian Anderson from the postseason success standpoint. This guy was a huge reason why the Braves had success in the postseason in both 2020 and 2021 winning the World Series. Ian Anderson was a pivotal figure in both of those postseason runs. So thinking about a down 2022 and then you abandon an arm like that, I can't imagine the Braves are in that position, at least not yet. I don't think so. I mean, think about how spectacular Anderson was too. You're, I mean, this was a historic level of play that we saw out of him uh, in the postseason. And I think you have to figure out, you know, whether or not this guy can bounce back and whether he got, you know, was able to make adjustments uh, in a year where things didn't go his way. And he was back down the minor league level and ultimately ran into some injury issue as well. So I, I think they, either one of these guys, I mean, long-term, you know, is, has a potential to be really special. And I think that's why this makes it one of the more fascinating spot uh, runs for the number five spot in the rotation I can think of in quite some time because they're just, they feel so solidified one through four. I mean, I think this is going to be a really fun thing to watch this spring. Yeah, it should be really interesting because as much as the injuries for Mike Soroka are the question mark to him, the third pitch for Ian Anderson and, and the command that comes with being able to have three major league offerings and being able to go through a lineup a third time or at least begin going through the lineup for the third time and feel pretty confident about that, that is, to me, as big a question as the injuries have been for Mike Soroka in terms of overall effectiveness. And we're going to find out over the course of spring training. It almost feels like, in some ways that maybe Bryce Elder's a little bit of a forgotten man, but if he just continues to go out there and pitch well and cover innings, he may find his opportunity at some point over the course of the season. Uh, so might Jared Schuster. There might be some other guys in the minor league side of things that come up and have that chance. We just know that it's thinned out considerably. There's no more Tuki Tucson, no more Sean Newcomb. There's no more Freddie Tarnick. There's no more Cal Muller. A lot of the different names that we would call at different times to, hey, maybe this guy gets a shot in rotation. They are no longer in a Braves uniform. So the candidates, it seems to be a little bit of a shorter list, and it actually seems to be uh, maybe a bit of a stronger list in a lot of ways because there are questions around, I think, each of these three guys, but the questions are a little bit different than they've been over the past few years. At least you know that they've had some experience. They've done some meaningful things for the Braves. Can they stay healthy in the case of Soroka? Can he prove to be effective the way that he needs to be in the case of Ian Anderson? And then for Bryce Elder, I think the question as much as anything is just opportunity. Is he going to get one of those? Now, a couple of other positions we know that people are wondering about. We've already talked about shortstop, and I think we spent all offseason talking about shortstop, and we're not done yet because we haven't gotten to spring training to see who the Braves' starting shortstop is going to be. few interesting free agents are still out there in terms of stop gaps. We've talked about the Elvis Andrus of the world, uh, Jose Iglesias, Andrelton Simmons. I mean, there's a handful of 
players who have had success in their career, I would say, but are definitely a big step down from what were the top free agent options out there in free agency for shortstop this year. This one from Philip, though, is Braden Shoemake an option to start at shortstop to begin the year? Corey, we don't spend a lot of time talking about Braden Shoemake. I know he had an injury that kind of derailed the second half of the season last year. Uh, talking to Dana Brown when they drafted this guy, they believed that he could stick at shortstop. They believed that he was a guy who could get on base at a good clip and become maybe a bit of an emerging hitter with a little bit more power than even he showed at Texas A&M. But we haven't really seen that the last couple of years. I'm just interested to see where are you on Braden Shoemake? Do you think he's a guy that could kind of work his way into this equation at shortstop? Because I'm kind of of the mind to say, really, nothing can be ruled out until you get guys in camp and start seeing who shows up and what they show you in order to make a decision at shortstop. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to be interested to see, you know, he had a left, uh, lower left leg injury that had him carted off the field, uh, you know, last season ending things for him after 76 games. So I don't know that I haven't heard anything uh, about the, even his no. status at this point, whether he's going to be good to go for spring training. But, you know, the power numbers dropped off for him last year. I mean, you know, the average went up, you know, the OP, uh, the OPS went up a little bit. But um, I, you know, I know people really like the defense with him. I just think it's a matter of whether or not the offense can carry over. And I, I don't know that he, uh, he, is really the, the, a guy I would look at, you know, to be an opening day option at shortstop one because of the, the injury thing, but I don't know that he would beat out uh, Arcia or uh, Grissom at this point, but I think, you know, long-term, I think he, you know, the fact that they've held on to him tells you what the, the way that they, you know, regard him in terms of this system. He's still, you know, one of the I mean, number four prospect in this organization right now. I think there's a real good chance he makes it up this next season. If he's healthy, I just don't think opening days in the cards for him. Yeah. I don't think that he's the opening day option that you're looking for, particularly to leave frog over a guy in Von Grissom who showed you last year some flashes of what he could be and now could get an opportunity to play at what is you know still regarded as his natural position at least at the moment then you've also got a guy with multiple years of major league experience in Orlando Arcia both those guys were key players for you at times and what you did in 2022 so for them to lose out to kind of a dark horse candidate if you want to call it that it would have to be a pretty impressive candidate. You look at Shoemake last year, you know, he spent 76 games with Triple A Gwinnett. Again, he missed some time with a leg injury, only seven home runs and just over 300 plate appearances, uh, OPSing 715. That was up from what was a really down year for him with Mississippi, but I kind of looked at him the same way I looked at a lot of players. What did 2020 do to the maturation process, the development of so many minor leaguers? I'm kind of okay with looking at 2021 and saying, all right, well, maybe that doesn't tell me everything I need to know about a player. 2022, though, didn't necessarily lead me to believe that Shoemake had taken that big step forward. He runs pretty well. The walk rate down, though, the on-base percentages that he showed, at least as a college player, haven't necessarily translated in the same way that you would want to see. That 370 range, if he could on-base at a 370 clip, I think he would be knocking on the door right now. But it's really been kind of the high 200s, low 300s the last couple of years. And that not necessarily outside of a look in the South Atlantic League a couple of years ago now, three years ago now, really hasn't painted the picture that Braden Shoemake has been able to take all of the tools that the Braves saw as a college player and really be able to find that success and consistency that he needs to to push his way into this equation. I mean, to me, he's just got to show that he can consistently hit the ball and do so with authority. I think that's the big thing for him right now. We don't have any question whether or not he can play the shortstop position. Uh, you know, no, I think everyone's lauded the defensive ability. It's just whether or not he can provide something offensively. I mean, you know, we've seen the 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 strikeout rate's been really high with him. I, I just I think you just need to see 
something consistently offensively to feel like he can make it up to the major league level. Yeah, and I think that if you're just looking at basic OPS numbers, I mean, at the minor league level, yeah. it's got to be what at least over 750 to really feel like that this guy offers you enough as an all-around package to be more of an option than either Orlando Arcia, who has shown some surprising power at times for mm-hmm. the Braves, and of course what Von Grissom showed you last year, particularly in his first month as a big leaguer. And with Grissom, I mean, I go back to this time and time again, I know that he struggled to have the same kind of quality of at-bats maybe in the second half of his run in the big leagues last year. The, you know, the second month didn't look as good as the first month, but I do think he has the ability to put together some really quality at-bats. I do think he is selective. It's just finding the way to make that consistently hard contact. That seemed to be something that eluded Von Grissom at times last year. Yeah, I mean, this guy just turns 22 years old on Thursday. Right. I mean, we can't yeah. forget that. Yeah. I mean, obviously the, the start was fantastic, right? I mean, you hit 347, 398, 558 with a 165. We had run create a plus in the first 26 games and end up going 190, 286, 214 with a 47 way to run create a plus in the last 14. I mean, if, if the, maybe find some middle ground there and we feel a little bit different about this guy, but I don't think we we dispute what he can do offensively. And I wonder too, I mentioned to you before, how much of this comes from the fact that he was playing out of position. Yeah. You know, how much that kind of took away from his ability to really get comfortable for a long stretch offensively. I think that's something worth debating as well, but we may not find that out until we actually see him get consistent ABs. If that comes at shortstop here in this upcoming season. Yeah. And I think we know that at any level that you're at really, but in particular at the big league level, you may get that run of success, but once not just the tape gets out, but once the word gets out and once you know the adjustments are made by the league where is your first set of adjustments how quickly does that come to be able to show hey you know what they know I can hit a fastball now I'm going to show them I can lay off that slider that change up the secondary stuff that you're just going to get absolutely peppered with your second time through seeing a team so for Vaughn Grissom I think that you know he hasn't had the huge sample size yet I think we saw enough to get excited about but also enough to be able to perhaps temper the expectations that this is was one of the youngest players in baseball still will be one next year as a 22 year old what will he be able to do beyond that we're going to find out in spring training at least that's where it all starts So talking about shortstop is one discussion we're going to have about the Braves and continue to have, have had all winter long, and it appeared to show no signs of stopping. But also left field continues to be a question for the Braves because it wasn't upgraded in the offseason, Corey, the way that we thought perhaps it might be. None of us had catcher at the top of our card of places the Braves definitely need to get better. But if you looked at left field and DH, those were two spots the Braves most definitely needed to upgrade beyond the shortstop discussion. So uh, Kieran Ryan asks, who will start? in left field for the Braves. I'm assuming opening day 2023 is kind of what we're talking about here. If you're looking at the in-house candidates right now, and if you're looking at guys who could really help out the Braves by just kind of returning to form, I'm looking really closely at Eddie Rosario, no pun intended, because it was that eye injury that kept him from having a 2022 that was anything short of forgettable. Yeah, I think, you know, it kind of speaks to the way that the Braves are approaching left field, you know, that they went out and got, you know, Jordan Luplo and not... We're talking about a earth-shattering addition here that they believe that they're going to get a bounce-back year from Eddie Rosario in 2023. And, uh, you know, certainly last year was forgettable on a number of levels for him. A 62-weighted run create a plus, you know, minus 1.1 F war, his first negative war season, hit just five home runs uh, in, over, across uh, 80 games. I think they believe that they can kind of do exactly what they did with the platoon with him and, uh, and Luplo like they did with him and Robbie Grossman after yeah. the trade last season. And I think this also maybe leads us to believe that this team is not 
going to be able to to part ways with uh, Marcelo Zuna. I think it, this feels like they're going to have to go with him in some way, shape, or form. Uh, the fact that they didn't go out and get aggressive uh, in getting an outfielder or slash DH that maybe they feel like they're going to have. Because, I mean, I don't believe there's probably anybody willing to take him unless they're willing to eat a lot of that contract. So it feels to me like you got Eddie Rosario starting in left field on opening day, and this is going to be a platoon situation uh, just like it was a year ago with him and Grossman. Yeah, and you remember when the Braves signed Marcelo Zuna in 2020 and he came out in spring training and he had a hit or two maybe, then everything got shut down and we had that long summer and they came back for that summer camp and then all of a sudden Ozuna kind of revealed, yeah, it wasn't really where I wanted to be in spring training, but now I'm there. And then he had that incredible 2020 season in which he almost won a triple crown and obviously earned himself a four-year deal with the Braves as a result of that. I think a more motivated Marcelo Zuna who shows something close to maybe the transformation that happened in the three or four months between whatever was going on in February, March, and whatever it needed to happen by the time you got to July and August when that season got underway. But it's hard to overlook 2021 and 2022 put together the off-field problems and the lack of on-field production. It's no wonder why people are searching for reasons why this guy is still part of the equation. The answer, of course, is they owe him $37 million. That's the only reason why this guy is still on this club at this point. I don't think it's because people are just huge fans of his upside and want to keep trotting that out there every single year. Yeah, you can say that, but you know the, the fact is uh, you're ending up in the kind of same situation that you were in if you're the Braves with Dan Ugla a number of years ago where he kind of went down, then down a little bit more, and then you kept thinking, all right, well, at some point he's got to figure this out. When does his contract become a sunk cost? Corey, I do think 2023 is kind of the year where you decide whether or not this is a sunk cost. And if you're the Braves and the worst case scenario being that he just is not productive and you got to cut him loose, we're going to get the answer to this question. It's just not coming, I think, as fast as some people would want in terms of maybe turning the page and moving on from him. But to make a long story short with it, at this point, you know, he is still in this equation. I would think more so as a DH than a left fielder. But if he could go out and somehow get motivated to come back in better shape and turn a corner hitting-wise and show anything close to what he was even before the 2020 year, which is, I think, a pie-in-the-sky dream for Braves fans if you're hoping for production from this guy or just anything that makes it palatable to have him on your roster at all because he's got to be better than he was the last couple of years for him to be a realistic option to actually help this club out. Yeah, I, I don't think anybody envisions he's going to post 178 weighted run creative plus and no. lead the National League in homers again in, in the 2020 season. But obviously, it's the off-field stuff that has made him, uh, you know, made him so unmovable to this point. Where because look, if, if you have that track record and he's had you know six seasons of you know above uh, league average production, if he doesn't have those off-field issues, you're probably finding a team that's willing to take him, even if you have to eat a little bit of the money. Uh, that obviously is the the caveat in all this that nobody else wants to launch to to you know have to explain to their fan gate fan base that they're bringing on a guy that has the other issues that he has. I don't know though that that kind of production is going to make Braves fans forget the last two years and all the other stuff that's happened off the field. But certainly they're in a position where they really don't have any choice but to see if he can try to produce that at that kind of level again. Certainly, you if they had brought in another. A big outfielder slash DH. If they had gone and gotten JD Martinez, or they had gone out and you know were able to make that Brian Reynolds trade, maybe we're talking about this a little bit differently. But I don't know at this point that they really have any other option besides bringing him in camp, 
seeing what he does and you know, going into the opening day, uh, you know, roster uh, with him as a part of it. Yeah, because the kind of guys that you brought in, you pointed out earlier, I mean, Jordan Luplo, I mean, these are useful players, but these are not guys who were anything more than adding Robbie Grossman over the course of the trade deadline last year. It was just yeah. for outfield depth, just to give you some other kind of option, somebody who maybe could do a little something for you that was different from whatever was going on at that time. And you know, Grossman was a useful player, but I mean, you go look at those numbers, it wasn't exactly lighting the world on fire, but the expectation had fallen so low for both Marcelo Zuna and for Eddie Rosario, for that matter, that anything that showed you know the ability to put the ball in play felt like some kind of an upgrade. And defensively speaking, it doesn't take much to feel like some kind of an upgrade. But whether it's Sam Hilliard who might fight for some playing time or as a 26th man in the outfield, uh, they did make that Eli White trade, what, a week or two ago. So, I mean, there are some names that are out there as far as the outfield depth that the Braves have added, but none of these can be looked at as the answer in left field. At least I don't feel like it. I would love to be proven wrong by somebody going out there and having a crazy breakout season, but the Braves didn't exactly line up the candidates that make you feel like, well, everything else in their major league career you can ignore because now they're here, they've arrived, and they're going to save the day. I, I think that the answer may still be out there. That may not be a Brian Reynolds trade, but I do think at some point, Corey, if you continue to see a lack of production at left field in DH, and at DH, I guess you could put you know Travis Darno and Sean Murphy's name in there on days that they're not catching if you wanted to, but you kind of dealt away your third catcher options because William Contreras was more than a third catcher. He was a guy that would be in that position to help you out at DH as well if he wasn't catching. He's no longer on the club, and Manny Pena is no longer on the club, so you, I think, have to be a little bit careful to at least guard your catchers and also maybe give them a little time off once in a while because that's a pretty demanding position. I feel like this is one of those in-season fixes, perhaps, for Alex Anthopoulos to go out and try to make your outfield better again. And the last time he had to do that and was able to do that, it turned out pretty well. So I, I don't know. We'll see how that all plays out. I will say, though, think about last year and how long we saw before teams were actually ready to kind of pull the plug and say, all right, we're sellers. Because the fact that you had the additional postseason spots, and obviously we saw the Phillies make the run that they did. Yeah. I don't know that teams are going to be as willing again going into this year to give up so quickly and move the kind of pieces that the Braves would need for that. So this could be something that you know, you're, it may not get resolved until we talk about the, the trade deadline after the All-Star break. Yeah, but I do think I do feel confident that if we are talking about Brian Reynolds, whether it's today and in, in the first week of January or whether it's in any day of the year, the Pirates are probably not going to have to be making the decision of whether or not they're buyers or sellers at the trade deadline. I feel like that no. decision uh, may already be written in the stars for them but I'm putting it all aside I think the Braves could find ways to upgrade at that position but if you're asking me who's going to be starting on opening day for the Braves I think Eddie Rosario is probably the most logical choice as far as that's concerned now let's wrap up our show with this because Steve asked a question about the Hall of Fame voting and I, I know we've been keeping an eye on some familiar names former Braves who are on this ballot which all of a sudden looks a little bit more clear even though there are still guys on that have some questions and controversies surrounding them Without the Bonses and Clemens and Kurt Schillings, at least it looks a little bit different for the first time in a while. So uh, Steve asked, does anybody get voted in this year by the writers? Now, we know Fred McGriff was brought in by the Modern Era Committee. That is, of course, a long overdue slight, I think, that was finally righted because the writers weren't able to get him in because of years of crowded ballots, among other things. As Steve says, usually voting tracking is about 5% higher than the actual voting total ends up being when they do reveal it. It's going to be happening very soon. Scott Rowland is the only player tracking around 80%. So you would kind of bump 5% down from that, and you'd feel like, yeah, maybe he's in line to get the 75% that's necessary to get into the hall. 
Steve goes on to say, I think Andrew Jones and Billy Wagner continue to gain traction. They'll get in in 2025. Would love to see Gary Sheffield get in, but his ties to Bonds are more specifically, I think, to the Balco deal. That hurts him. Corey, we've talked a little bit about the Hall of Fame, and I know that's something that you know some people love talking about it, like me, and some people are tired of hearing about it because of all the consternation that goes into it every single year. Everybody's got thoughts and feelings, though, even if their thoughts and feelings are just, I'm over it, whoever gets in, gets in. If they don't get in, then whatever. But I do think Roland is probably the only player that gets in on the writer's ballot this year. Uh, if, as you look at it, do you feel like it's possible still that – Andrew and Billy Wagner get in. I think they just take a big jump into the 60-plus percent area, and I think that we're talking about this again maybe in the next year or two of them finally getting over that hurdle with you know at least a significant amount of time left for Andrew, if not for Billy Wagner, on this ballot. Yeah, I think Todd Helton is the guy that I think is borderline, right? Like right now, Mr. Tibbs uh, on Twitter, which, I mean, Ryan Thibodeau does a – Fantastic. I don't know that there's uh, anything more. There there are a lot of great Twitter accounts. Yeah. I don't know that there are. This this is like top tier in terms of when you get to this time of the year, the service that he does for everybody. You talk about finding your calling. I mean, we should all be so lucky as to find something that we do as well as he's been doing. I know he has a a team that's helping him out as well. But yeah, I would put a huge, huge endorsement on following him in order to keep up with all of this because it's a uh, probably a very, very unfun job, a very litigious job, and he is able to make it both fun and very informational for those of us out there trying to track on this. But I yield yeah. the floor back to you. Again, I, I give this every endorsement I possibly can, but Helton, he's got it 77% right now, which you you mentioned uh, the question talking about, you know, the kind of minus uh, of about 5% there uh, from what the tracking has shown, which I think is going to make it really interesting whether or not he gets in. I do agree with you that we feel like with Andrew Jones and Billy Wagner that they're really close. I think so. Think about Larry Walker. You know, he was in the class of 2020. He went as low as 10% in 2014, then went to 34% in 2018, 54% in 2019, ahead of getting that 76% the year of his election. I feel like we're getting right there with Jones and, and Wagner. I think about uh, Jones was at 41% last year. Uh, he's tracking right now around um, 69, 70%. And then with Wagner, you've got him about that same exact position. So if you get those guys into the 50s, if not the 60 percentiles, I think a year from now, we're really talking about a push for them to get in. You're going to get a more crowded ballot, though, going forward. You, I think that's the interesting pl- piece in this, too. This year and next year, the balance are, are not as, as deep as they're going to be going forward uh, in their candidacies. Then we're going to get into the likes of, you know, Brian McCann and some other really interesting candidates down the line here. When you start talking about the 20, uh, 2025, and 2024 and 25 classes, Ichiro's in the 25 class. Yeah. So things could get really dicey for them later when we talk about the number of years on the ballot. So this is Andrew's sixth and then Wagner's. He's got two more left at eight. So I think there's a chance next year we're talking about both of them, but I don't think it's going to be this year. Yeah, I think it's going to take another year at least to get Billy Wagner over the hump. You mentioned his eighth year. He was at 51% last year. I think it's crazy when you look at how he rates among all-time closers that it kind of took this long for people to realize, hey, maybe this guy who struck out an awful lot of hitters, in fact, struck out hitters at a rate, you know, here for two unseen as a reliever with that kind of longevity Maybe this is a good Hall of Fame candidate. But putting that aside, I mean, Andrew Jones finally climbed up over the 40% mark last year. He's in his sixth year. Sheffield in that ninth year at 40.5%, I believe, last year. They're around. And then you do have Alex Rodriguez. You've still got Manny Ramirez, I think, hanging around on this ballot as well. His seventh year, 
Omar Vizquel's become a divisive character for reasons not having anything to do with performance-enhancing drugs. You got Andy Pettit. There's some questionable stuff going on there. I think Bobby Abreu is the guy that is going to be interesting, not because he's going to get in this year, but you know Jerome Drinovich, who was a great pre- and post-game host for the Braves on yep. television for the better part of 20 years. Both you and I know him. Braves fans know him if you watch the local television broadcast over the last, again, 20 or so years. He asked, what am I missing about Bobby Abreu? And I just sat down and just looked at the candidacy you know, what is it about Bobby Abreu? And then I realized this is a guy who's very underrated. He does not have the whole closet full of MVP trophies and, you know, 10 gold gloves the way that Andrew Jones does, a whole bunch of silver sluggers. I mean, this was just a guy who did a whole lot of things very well, and he did it very well for a very long time. So, you know, he's kind of starting out that little climb where I'm going to be interested to see if kind of the analytics side is able to push him up over the next five or so years into a borderline Hall of Fame candidate the same way that I think Larry Walker finally ended up getting over that hump. I see a lot of similarities there, not in the overall gross stats, but just in the fact that Bobby Abreu was a great all-around player. Now, would you look at him and have thought Hall of Famer every night that you watched him? Probably not, but I also think that greatness looks a lot of different ways. Some of times it looks like Barry Bonds. Other times it might look like Babe Ruth. Other times it might look like Henry Aaron, Willie Mays, King Griffey Jr., you know, Ted Williams. Pick 10 other guys that seem pretty obvious, but sometimes some of the other guys who were greats of their era, it might take a little bit of looking, and I don't think that defeats the purpose of the Hall of Fame voting just because you have to make a case for some guy and just because it might take a little while for him to get voted in. Yeah, not everybody just jumps off the page, right? I mean, I think there's there's a lot of guys where you end up, and I think Helton is that same way. And I think Helton, sure. Walker, and even Edgar Martinez was a guy that I think it took oh, yeah. a lot of people because of the fact, that obviously, he was a DH. But I think there are certain guys like that that you have to look a little bit longer, and you look at the longevity and how long you know they were uh, among the best players in the league for. I think that changes you know, the, what you, how you deem it. And certainly there are different levels of hall of fame. There's those inner circle guys and those ones that you think, mm-hmm. yeah, this guy was a, a really special player for a long period of time. And sometimes that wins out more so than a guy having a lot of bold and italed numbers on their baseball reference page. Yeah. They're not all going to look like the, you know, Mickey Mantle or pick all these all-time greats that just, they jump right off the page. As you just mentioned, I mean, there's one guy on this particular ballot who, if you do look at both the longevity and his place among switch hitters, would seem like a slam dunk Hall of Famer. And that, of course, is Carlos Beltran. He, though, is kind of the figurehead of the Astros' sign-stealing scandal. And trust me, it was more than just Carlos Beltran that made that whole thing tick and made that whole thing happen and is responsible for all the things that happened there. I don't want to get lost in the weeds arguing about the Astros, were they punished enough, all these other things. But we are going to start to see guys who were attached to that, none probably bigger than Beltran. How is this going to affect their legacy when it comes to Hall of Fame voting? What do you think is going to be the Carlos Beltran trajectory? Do you think he'll be punished for the 10 years and kind of fall off the ballot and end up with the committees? Or do you think it's going to kind of win out that this was a guy who looked like a Hall of Famer, played like a Hall of Famer? You kind of thought he was a Hall of Famer until all of this sign-stealing stuff happened in the twilight of his career. Yeah, right now he's at 56%. So obviously he's going to stick on the the ballot for right, a, right, a right. little bit yeah. of time here. But I, I think he's going to eventually get in. I just think there it, it's almost like a waiting game with him. I think the fact that you feel like this guy was good, but I think he's going to be penalized, you know, and kind of in the the realm of of you know public perception here for being a part of that that he ultimately he eventually gets in but he's not going to be a first th- maybe second or even third ballot uh, hall of famer and i also wonder too 2 years from now brian mccann's going to be eligible and brian mccann wasn't in houston for a long time 
but he was there during the right period of time where you're, you're, you're thinking about the potential, you know, what did he know? What, you know, he's never come out and said anything about it. So is he another guy that's going to be, you know, looped into that, despite the fact that he was so good, you know, seven time all-star six times silver slugger in 15 yeah. seasons. Uh, what, what is, what impact is that going to have on him as well? Another guy that, you know, obviously had a long track record mm-hmm. before he ever played for the Houston Astros. Yeah, he did. And I think that McCann was always going to be a, a bit more of a long shot to get into the baseball hall of fame i think you end up being in the braves hall of fame at some point and again oh, sure. you know we can have these discussions about the houston astros some other time or maybe a quarter to never because we've talked about it enough i don't know really what else we're going to get out of it other than the fact that something wrong went on and clearly went on for a while and it got completely and totally out of hand and various people were responsible for it to various degrees but you know whether or not you're to believe all the different stories that come along with it whether or not you are kind of giving some guys a pass and other guys not one of the places where we see this kind of thing to really be argued about is when somebody does end up on the Hall of Fame ballot. So it will be interesting to see what, if anything, that that does affect with Brian McCann, though I don't expect him to get anywhere near the kind of support that Beltron was going to get and was in line for before any of this stuff was attached to his name. Other interesting candidate on this ballot, to me, a first-timer, was Francisco Rodriguez. K-Rod, if you will. We remember when he exploded onto the scene with the uh, Los Angeles Angels at that time, maybe the Anaheim Angels. Either way, the former California Angels, same team, same city, different names, all of that stuff. Uh, He's a pretty similar candidate to Billy Wagner in a lot of different ways. Not the strikeout dominance, but just overall, when you're looking at closers, he was surprisingly a, a better player than I realized on the whole. Same number of years as Billy Wagner. If you look into some of the advanced Hall of Fame stuff, like Baseball References Hall of Fame monitor, very favorable with Wagner. Same thing for uh, the Jaws, for his war over seven best seasons, all of those kinds of things. I think he could fall off the ballot this year, and I'm, I'm not sitting here making a big case as to why he, that will be the biggest crime because other guys like Lou Whitaker have fallen off after one year. I just thought he was an interesting candidate, and nobody is really talking about him whatsoever, which lets you know that even on a non-crowded ballot where this whole conversation started maybe because you had Bonds and Clemens and Schilling removed, it's still a little bit complicated with the rule of 10 in place to really feel like you get to give people the even the yes or no test as far as Hall of Famers are concerned without there being an arbitrary number above which you cannot vote. Yeah, I think I, I don't want to turn this into a soapbox here. I think that to me is is one of the biggest issues with this process. That you're only, and I don't think anybody's going to turn in a ballot that's going to have every single guy on that ballot right. with a check mark next to him. But I think the fact that it's limited to 10 continues to be one of the most damning things of this whole process. But Francisco Rodriguez has just 6.7% uh, of the ballots right now. Despite being fourth all time with 437 saves, 15 more than Billy Wagner has. I think if anybody is watching Billy Wagner's candidacy with a high degree of interest, it's Francisco Rodriguez because I think it completely changes how you know potentially the Veterans Committee, the ERA committees are going to look at him down the line because Lee Smith's in. Lee, Smith, I mean, I've heard this before. You take Lee Smith's numbers, and he's a run of the mill reliever in today's game with a lot of the advanced metrics the the stuff is just not as overpowering as it has been in the last era of baseball and certainly francisco rodriguez is a guy you know that was a major piece uh you know for the angels winning the world series you know a 286 era and 948 games 1100 strikeouts a lot of those things scream hall of famer and i think if if billy wagner ultimately gets in 
it only ends up helping the case of a guy like Francisco Rodriguez. Yeah, and I think as we've seen relievers become a bigger part of the game, I mean, the complete game, for all intents and purposes, is dead. It is no longer a thing that you expect to have a whole bunch of on your staff. You don't expect every starter that is going to go to the post 30 to 35 times. I mean, guys don't go to the post 35 times anymore. Before that, it was uh, they don't go to the post 40 times anymore. Well, they're certainly not completing 5 to 10 or more games per year two or three complete games, sometimes even one, is enough to lead the league in some years, which is just bizarre to think about. I know the numbers behind it. I understand the evolution of the game. I'm not arguing against it. I'm just saying as you start to make relievers a more important part of baseball, then I think you open yourself up to the fact that you need to really look at all the relievers and say, hey, who are the best relievers over periods of time? Who are the best relievers all time? And don't those guys of a particular position class have a place in Cooperstown, particularly if they're top four all time in a statistic that has been as lauded as saves at times. I know it's kind of like the pitcher wins of relievers. It's not necessarily that you got the most important outs, but there's something to be said for lasting 16 or so years in the case of both K-Rod and the case of Billy Wagner and being the guy who was given the ball in what is largely looked at as the highest leverage positions to get those final outs for your team. Not all saves are created equal. Not all relievers are created equal. And I'm just saying these two guys, not as much separates them as you might imagine. So I will say this, breaking down Lee Smith versus Francisco Rodriguez, when I mentioned you know, kind of Lee Smith's place in, today, in the kind of latest era, if you will, of guys that are appearing on the ballot in, in terms of former uh, relievers. Rodriguez has a 2.86 ERA to Smith's 3.03. You know he's got an ERA plus of 148 to to Lee Smith's 132. I mean all the all the secondary numbers are all in Francisco Rodriguez's favor. Just, obviously, you know Smith pitched longer, had more saves, all those you know things that yeah. you look at. The strikeouts aren't that far apart. It's just a little over 100 strikeouts. The fact, despite the fact that Lee Smith pitched over 300 more innings than than K Rod did, so I think it's easy to get caught up in a guy who has the place that he does on the all-time saves list and as Lee Smith did when he retired, but don't discount Francisco Rodriguez. I know a lot of the voters are doing that, but I think ultimately this guy's going to get a really long look uh, when it comes down the line, if that ends up having to be uh, from the era committee. It should be interesting is all I was saying with him. And the fact that not really anybody was talking about him as much. I mean, other storylines on this ballot, as we wrap things up here, Jeff Kent, 10th and final time Mm -hmm. on the ballot. I don't think he's tracking at anywhere close to being able to get in. One of the better offensive second basemen of all time. His fate will go into the era committees, it would seem like, as well. Another guy who's getting some support, but not necessarily like world-beater type of numbers, and I don't expect him to get in, is Mark Burley. But what interests me about Mark Burley is that his career, by and large, the longevity obviously there, the durability obviously there, the perfect game, the 2005 White Sox, the win in the World Series, all those things. I mean, he has accolades. He has a Hall of Fame case. Does it mean he's going to get the 75%? Of course not. What's interesting to me is that he seems to be getting a lot more attention than, say, Tim Hudson, who fell off the ballot a couple of years ago. Because if you start to line up Mark Burley and Tim Hudson and you do a blind taste test, I think I'm going to be taking Tim Hudson's career numbers over Mark Burley. That's just me, though. And maybe I can't say that it's a blind test because I kind of know what Tim Hudson did at the different stages of his career. But this was a very winning pitcher for a very long time who – did not get much support and kind of fell right off the ballot. And I see in different circles, it's like, oh, well, we need to look a little bit closer at guys like Mark Burley. Well, if you're looking that close at Mark Burley, you probably need to look a little bit closer at Tim Hudson as well. So uh, comparisons here, right? I mean, so Hudson had a 349 ERA to Burley's 381. He had 200 more strikeouts despite the fact 
uh, that Burley ended up starting uh, 20 more, almost 20 more games than mm-hmm. Hudson did. So I, it is interesting to think about it from that way. The Hudson just fell off so quickly. The perfect game, the World Series, all seems to lean a little bit more uh, in terms of Burley's resume than what Hudson did uh, over his uh, you know career from going from 1999 to 2015. I mean, Hudson won the World Series with the Giants, so he did get That's that true. ring. Yeah. He was part of those A's Moneyball team, even though somehow in the movie they seem to – negate or ignore the fact that they had three of the best young starting pitchers in baseball but hey we got a catcher playing first base so it must be the reason they won all those games anyway that aside and and my movie reviews for movies that probably won't get sequels anytime soon also aside i think that pretty much brings us to a place where we can put the hall of fame discussion down and uh, just look forward to being that much closer to spring training six weeks before pitchers and catchers report in the middle of february the world baseball classics also going to be on deck during the exhibition season going to be fascinating to see for all 30 teams different position battles and of course how everybody's looking as we get towards opening day and for the braves just like everybody else some different questions and things that we're going to continue to discuss right here on from the diamond as always Corey, i enjoyed it and we'll find a way to pack in another 30 40 minutes an hour's worth of baseball talk in the next week's episode too yeah, and we all have to be working on the best shape of our life. That's, yes, that's key do. with spring training. Break. Yes, we do. If you need the T-shirt to go with that, check out our friends over at RotoWare. They've got the best shape of my life shirt. Because we're going to be hearing that quote quite a bit or some derivative of that quote when we get to pitchers and catchers reporting. Corey, as always, I appreciate your time, and we look forward to chatting with you again next week. I appreciate it, Grant. Thanks, as always, to Corey McCartney for making time to chat with me this week. And my thanks, as always, to each and every one of you who make From the Diamond part of your baseball podcast regimen. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you'd be so kind as to leave us a rating and a review, that would help us out immensely as we look to grow the show and take it to even bigger heights in 2023. Follow me on Twitter at Grant McCauley. The show is at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. Make sure you follow Corey at Corey J. McCartney. And you can find us over on Battery Power TV. Just search on YouTube for Battery Power. You can find all the great stuff that we're doing over there with our friends at Battery Power. And make sure you like the show on Facebook. Just search for From the Diamond as well. Thanks again for joining us on the premiere episode of 2023. Many more to come. And until next week, for Corey McCartney, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone.